in your Bible today, the book of Genesis. Shock, huh? Okay, Genesis chapter number 3 today, if you will turn there with me. And as soon as you find it, stand to your feet with me as we read God's Word together. Genesis chapter 3, and I begin reading in verse number 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and then gave also unto her husband and with her, with her and he did eat. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam, and he said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled, the serpent deceived me. And I did eat. And thank you, and you may be seated. And so our subject today is the fall of man. The fall of man. One short chapter here, 24 verses total. Hear me. There is no more consequential passage of Scripture in all of the Bible than Genesis chapter 3. If you don't understand Genesis chapter 3, if you have not come to terms with Genesis 3, you really don't understand what's happening in the world today. You can read your paper, and you just have a partial understanding of what is happening. It's a consequential passage. The question, one of the ultimate questions is, why is there so much evil, and why is there so much suffering in the world? All right, you find the answer in Genesis chapter 3, at least part of the answer. You look around today, and if you are a thinking person and you watch the news, read the papers, think for yourself, you have to come to the conclusion that right now darkness is winning. Evil is in the ascendancy, and good is in a descent. We live in a very dark time. You know that. 
That's not the subject. But the subject today tells you why we live in such a dark time. Because now evil has had 6,000 years to come to fruition, to come to where it is today. And the Bible says, evil times and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So this is not the Adam and Eve myth that your sociology book taught you in college. This is not mythological at all. This is factual. This is a true account. This is not a Bible story to put children to bed with at night. This is a true account of the entrance of sin into the human race, the fall of man. Note with me, number one, the temptation, the temptation itself. And we begin with the tempter, the serpent. The serpent is not the snake of today. The Bible says that he was more, he is more subtle, chapter 3 and verse 1. He's more subtle than any beast of the field. He appeared to be upright because the curse was that he would crawl on his belly. So at this point, that hasn't taken effect. So he's beautiful. He is intelligent. And I believe he was upright. I believe he was in an entirely different form than the, quote, snake or serpent of today. And Satan had possessed him and empowered him. And Satan, through him, asked questions. And the questions are designed designed to produce doubt about what God has said about God's Word. Just like today, so many people asking questions designed to tear down people's faith and what God said rather than to just simply listen to what God said. And so the serpent says, did God really say that? You mean God said that in verse number 1? Hath God really said what you have told me he has said? It doesn't sound like God, and so he cast doubt upon the authorship of the Scripture. And then he cast doubt upon the accuracy of it. You sure you heard him right? Are you sure that God really said what he said? And so in verse 4, her doubt then turns into outright denial. And Satan says to her, you shall not die. It begins with questioning God's Word, and it ends up with being a doubt about God's Word and then a denial of it. Look at at verse 6, and we see Eve's response to the temptation, Eve's sin. First of all, you will note there, and you might want to underscore these in your Bible, when the woman saw. So circle the word saw. That's the first thing. Her sin began with a look, a look that turned into lust, a look that turned into lust. I hear people, I've heard a lot of men say this, men, I have to pick on you a moment. Oh, there's no harm in looking. You ever heard that? There's no harm in looking. Well, the whole sequence started right here with a look, didn't it, did it not? Yes, there's a harm in looking. The whole pornography uh, industry today in the world is based upon the fact that we look first, and then it goes on 
to other things. So a look started the entire sequence of events that led here to the fall of man. First of all, she saw. Secondly, underlined the word, and she took. She took. The desire became a decision. She acted upon that look. She made a choice, if you will. And then it says, underline this, she ate of the fruit. She did eat. And so the choice became a chain. A look turned into lust. A desire became a decision. A choice became a chain. And what do I mean by it became a chain? I mean she now is enslaved. There's a wonderful verse in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that you and I must never forget. Do you want to turn there real quickly, John 8 and 44? And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one speaking. And here's what he says. He says, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. Sin enslaves. Sin chains people. Sin produces bondage. And right now, Satan has her. Eve is in his grasp. She was his slave. She was captured by Satan right here. Now, here was the, here's the principle. You may want to write somewhere there and take some notes on this because this is, I'll tell you, this, this one principle is worth your coming to church today. Immediate gratification without regard for long-term consequences. That's exactly what Eve, that's the basis on which she made her decision. She made, she wanted immediate gratification. She saw it attracted her. It was good for the eyes. It was good to the taste. She looked. She took it. She ate. She immediately gratified herself. Think about the world today. What, what, is, what is the thing that the devil uses to get us? He gets us with immediate gratification without regard for the long-term consequences. She obviously wasn't thinking about what this was going to produce in her life. And so she saw a look turned into lust. She took a desire, the desire became a decision. She ate, the choice became a chain that enslaved her and every one of us. Here was her thinking. And when you're tempted, this will be a temp- part of your temptation. What, when God's Word conflicts with what I want to do, well, what do I do? You see, God's Word that He had spoken to her conflicted with what she wanted to do. God said, you don't eat of the fruit. She wanted to eat of the fruit. And so what she wanted to do took precedence over what God had said. And today, every sin has its root right here. The root of sin is God's Word says this, but I want to do this, and I'm going to do what I want to do rather than be submissive to and obedient to the Word of God. Then in verse 6, the last little phrase, she gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And so we look at Adam's sin. And I want you again to turn to a passage of Scripture with me because the Bible always gives its own interpretation of every event. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, will you turn there with me for a moment? 
because I want to contrast and compare the sin of Eve with the sin of Adam. And so Eve's sin was a sin of emotion. It was a sin of her intellect. In fact, she acknowledged that the devil had deceived her. She was no match for Satan, and neither am I, neither are you. But now Adam's sin is of a different nature. And in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, and in verse number 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was overcome by her emotions. She was overcome in her intellect. Satan just flat talked her out of it. She was no match for him intellectually. But Adam understood, and Adam didn't act on his emotions. Adam went into this thing, as we say, with his eyes wide open. He must have reasoned something like this. I know what God said, but Eve tried it, and she said it was good. And after all, I love my wife, and I don't want to get her upset. Hmm? Have any of you men ever said that? Oh, come on, get that halo off your face there. I know we have, haven't we? We all have, sure. I don't want to get her upset, so I will follow her. I'll do exactly what she has asked me to do here. Eve's sin was her emotions and her intellect. Adam's sin was intentional. It was a choice that he made. Eyes wide open with full intention. I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it anyhow. No deception here. And so Adam's sin was more serious than Eve's sin. That's why the rest of the Bible, it doesn't talk about Eve's sin a whole lot. Have you, have you ever noticed? Because the whole character of the sin is different. Adam's sin is a sin of intention, of choice, of understanding the implications of what he's doing and doing it anyhow, a sin of presumption. Now, listen to me. Listen to me because you'll understand the nature of man if you do. Before the fall, while they were still in their innocency, they had never sinned. Sin had not entered the world. It had entered heaven in the form of Satan, but it had not come into the human race yet. And before the fall, they were able not to sin, and they were, or they were able to sin. They had the choice. Before the fall occurred, before Genesis 3 and 6, they could choose to sin, but they had the capacity as human beings not to sin. Now, after the fall, one minute, one second after verse number six, everything changes. After the fall, they're not able to not sin. They're not able to not sin. They now have a sinful nature, a sinful disposition. I can't explain it all to you. Did it occur in the DNA, in the genetic makeup? Did it occur? Where did, the, where did this change occur? But up to verse 6, in their innocency, they had the choice to sin or not sin. Once they had sinned, the first sin, they are not able to not sin. And boy, what an application for you and me, huh? 
Have you ever said to yourself, oh, I'm not going to do that again. I'm making a turn. I'm changing. I'm not going to do that again. A few minutes, a few hours, a day or two later, we are not able to not sin. That's the part of our fallen nature. Now, the Lord can give us victory. He can put a bigger space in between the sins. We can live largely in victory through the power of the Holy Spirit if we're believers. If you're a believer, you don't have to sin. You have power within you now that you don't have to do it, but you're going to slip no matter who you are if you have a fallen nature, and we all do. But you see, before the fall, they were able either to not sin or to sin after the fall. They're not able any longer to not sin. Now, I want you to turn to one other verse with me. Well, no, I'm going to have you turn to more than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But I want you to go there, and now we're really getting to the heart of understanding this thing of the fall. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a fairly familiar verse. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds. Can y'all give me just a hair more on my monitor here, please? In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. I want you to mark a phrase, the God of this world. The word world there is same word, word translated often age. The God of this age hath blinded the minds. But I want you to notice what Satan is called. He's called the God of the world, the God of this age, of this time in history, ever since they sinned here. Now, look up here with me, and I want to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered how Satan became the God of this world? The Bible says there very, very clearly he's the God of this world, doesn't it? Do you believe that, God's, uh, that Satan is the God of this world? Most Christians don't. Most Christians think, well, God is the sovereign God, and uh, Satan is just a little nuisance over here on the side. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, <clears throat> pardon me, he said he's the God of this world. If you read the book of John, chapter 12, the book of John, chapter 14, the book of John, chapter 16, Jesus himself referred to Satan as the prince of this world, the prince of this world. The prince, meaning one in authority over the world, the God of, the wor of this world, the prince of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, the apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church says that Satan is the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Satan, all of these things are saying Satan has authority over this world. Now, most Christians are not thinking that way, I, I don't think. And how did Satan get to be the prince of the world? How did Satan get to be the god of this world that has blinded the minds of so many different people? Now, I want you to really, really listen on this. This is a point of Christian doctrine that you really need to understand. When God created Adam, he put him in charge of the entire universe. Genesis 1, 26, God said, I'm giving you dominion. The root word for that also is authority. I'm giving you authority over the entire universe. 
over this planet. You are king. You are the ruler. You have dominion. You have power. You're the the man in charge. And you relate to me. You answer only to one person in the whole universe. You answer to me. And so God put Adam in charge. Well, what did Adam do? Ah, here's the problem. Adam put Satan in charge. Adam, when he sinned, he enthroned Satan in his heart rather than God being the authority in his heart. Do you understand that? Adrian Rogers has one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard, and he talks about how that Adam was the legal representative of God on the earth. Adam was the ambassador of the Almighty to the earth. He was in charge. He was president. He was CEO. He had all the titles. And he legally had the authority and then turned around, and when he obeyed Satan rather than obeying God, what did he do? He legally transferred the authority to Satan. And so Jesus says, John 12, John 14, John 16, Satan is the prince. Now, to prove to you that what I'm saying is is an accurate translation, go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 in your Bible. And here we are looking at the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. God put Adam in charge. Adam put Satan in charge. Adam, in his choice, dethroned God, took God off the throne of his heart, and enthroned Satan on the, on the throne of his heart. And so in, in Matthew 4, we have the Lord being tempted. And Satan comes to him, and the first two temptations I'm not going to refer to. But I've always wondered about this one. Ever since I was a little boy, I wondered about this. Because in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, again, the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain, and he showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And so they're looking down upon the world, and Satan said to him, verse 9, all these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. And I've always wondered, have you ever wondered this? I believe a lot of you may have wondered this too. I've always wondered why Jesus didn't say, well, they don't belong to you. How do you think you're going to give me the kingdoms of this earth? They don't belong to you, Satan. My father created this earth. But he didn't say that. He didn't even even challenge it. You know why he didn't challenge it? Because God put Adam in charge. Adam put Satan in charge. And so he's the prince of this world, the God of this world. And boy, if you don't believe me, just read the paper and see who's in charge around here. Now, so we have the fall. Man fell from his exalted position of having dominion. Chapter 1 and verse 26 to being a slave of Satan himself. And you know what happened? Adam and Eve were immediately conscious, immediately conscious of their sin. Let's go back now to Genesis chapter 3, and let's see what happens. The moment that they eat, the moment that they disobey, something happens. 
The eyes of them, verse number seven, the eyes of them both were opened. The eyes of them both were opened. Their conscience was awakened. Now they understand the consequence, the implication, the weight of what they have just done. Their consciences now are activated. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 25. They both were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But now sin comes, and the very first thing that happens, their eyes were open, their consciences are activated, if you will. And they were not ashamed of their nakedness before sin came. It clearly states it in verse 25 there. But now they hide themselves. There's guilt. The guilt is centered around their reproductive organs, their sexual organs. They were not ashamed of their nakedness in their innocence, but now they are. And so they have this sudden desire to to hide themselves. You know, I remember some course or something I read somewhere, I don't know exactly where it was now, many, many years ago, but I read where that shame and people being ashamed of being nude or nudity itself are simply artificial inhibitions that are conditioned into us by our society. And we're taught, you know, a little kid doesn't have any inhibitions. They'll come running out, running around in front of the company, you know, without anything on. And then they get a few years older, they, they sort of According to the theory, their, their inhibitions are conditioned by society. I personally don't believe that, and I, and I base my belief upon this passage. I believe that these people have some, I believe that every one of us who would be ashamed to be naked, every one of us, I believe it, I, I believe it is some primeval awareness of sin. And what happened right here? And I I, I believe that it's just built into us. I don't believe it's culturally determined. I believe it was, it's, it's it's an act of our conscience once the conscience is awakened. There's a great Lutheran expositor, writer, his name is H.C. Leopold. And he said, Adam and Eve covered that part of the body from which human nature comes. They covered the reproductive organs. Why? Because they instinctively felt that human life was now contaminated by sin. It was from that part of the body that fallen mankind was now to be born. And therefore, Adam and Eve we're instinctively led to cover that which best represents the fallen and corrupted nature of mankind. So in verse 8, they hide from God. They've been used to walking with the Lord in the garden, complete open fellowship, nothing to be ashamed of. Now they're hiding. And you know what the first thing they do? Look in verse 11. They begin to blame shift. Not much has changed, has it? Not much has changed. Verse 11, 
And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Have you eaten of the tree wherein I commanded you? And the man said, The woman who you gave to, to be with me. So Adam, first of all, he blames God. Why'd you give me this creature that would uh, mislead me? First thing he does, he blames God. And then secondly, he blames his wife. He blames the woman. And then thirdly, the woman then begins to blame the devil. And so everybody's passing the buck. Everybody's blame shifting. And so it's been ever since. Amen? It's been like that ever since, down through history. Now let's look at the curse then that happened. We've looked at the temptation. We've looked at the fall. Let's look now at the curse itself. Verse 14, the Lord said unto the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed above all cattle and every beast of the field upon your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so the curse was first upon the serpent, upon Satan himself. He's cursed above all the other cattle above all the other beasts, above all the other animals. God said to him, you will eat dust. You will eat dust. And what is, what is the significance of that? Well, the snake crawling, everything the snake is going to eat is, is, is contaminated by dust, of course. But even more important, it was humiliation. We even say that today about somebody who is being humiliated. They're eating dust. They are, they've been humiliated. They've been disgraced, crawling in the dirt. And then in verse 15, I will put enmity. That means hostility. That means conflict between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, notice in verse 15, you have two seeds and you still have those two seeds today. Two seeds. The first seed is the seed of the woman. The second seed, of course, is the seed of Satan himself. Good seed and the evil seed. But the seed of the woman is not referring to all of mankind. It's referring to one specific person, in fact. In fact, here we have one of the first prophecies ever of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is a prophecy. Verse 15 is a prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. You say, how do you get that? Well, it's the seed of the woman. It's not the seed of the woman and a man, as is normally required for a birth. It is the seed of the woman alone. And so we have a shadow of the virgin birth. And then it says that the woman's seed will crush Satan, will bruise his head, a fatal blow, if you will, and that the seed of Satan will bruise his heel, a non-fatal but a painful wound instead. And then in verse 16, he says to the woman, I will multiply your sorrow and your conception. And in sorrow, you will bring forth children, pain in childbirth. The greatest role that a woman can have, we believe biblically, is she can reproduce. 
She can further the species another generation. She can have a child made in the likeness of God. And according to this, while she's doing that, which is the most noble thing that she can do, she's going to suffer agonizing pain, the pain of childbirth. And then it says something here that I'm afraid a lot of preachers will skip when they get to it today. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And so the same word there as the word for dominion or rulership, that man is going to ultimately lead. It's the nature that God put within the species. Now, I don't have time to get into it. It's a whole different subject, of course. But uh, the feminist movement denies that. And they hate that. They hate that part of the Bible. And a lot of women have bought into that. Now, just read it. And we take our Bibles pretty literally here. So God said to Eve, this is part of the consequence of your sin. And then to Adam in verse 17, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you ate of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of your life. And in the verses to follow, and I won't take the time to read it all, but I want you to notice, here's the curse. The curse is on the ground in verse number 17. The curse is on the ground. Now listen to me. Give me your very best attention. This is important. You see, with the ground having a curse on it, everything comes from the ground. I mean, if you eat plants and vegetables and fruits, they come from the ground. So they, they are produced by something with a curse on it. If you eat meat, an animal, the cow grazes on corn or on grass, it comes from the ground. Everything comes from the ground. So the curse then becomes, uh, it becomes universal. It touches everything. Everything comes from the ground, and the ground was the first thing cursed in Genesis chapter 3 here. And because of that, note with me in the text, sorrow is going to result. Continual disappointment and futility. Futility, what a word, but how descriptive of how life is. Have you ever said to yourself, when you get real frustrated and real disappointed in something, ah, what's the use? I'm just tired of trying. Sure you have. We all have, haven't we? What's the use? Futility. The harder I try, the harder it becomes. That's part of the curse, sorrow from continual disappointment. And then thorns and thistles are going to come from the ground. And Romans tells us that the curse even affected the physical universe, that the creation groaneth with pain and suffering. The creation, the universe itself groans in pain until the day that the curse will be lifted in the millennial kingdom. And then he talks about sweat and tears, that everything you do is hard. 
The farmer goes out and plants his crop, but the ground only yields to him reluctantly, if you will. And so sweat and tears are part of the curse. And then ultimately, physical death. Go down to verse 19. Dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. And so if you choose cremation, you get to dust real quick. If you choose burial, it takes a few more years. But any way you cut it, we're all going to go back to the earth. We're going to go back to the dust from which we came. Now, turn in your Bible again. Galatians chapter 3. I hope that you appreciate me turning you in the Bible. But I want you to see the Bible is its own interpreter. And in Galatians 3.13, there's a wonderful verse of hope. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written in the law, cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That curse that was put upon the ground, now listen to me, hear me, hear me. Christ redeemed us from every aspect of that curse. If you will study, really study, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find that Christ experienced sorrow. What does the Bible say? He was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. He experienced sweat. He sweat, as it were, drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thorns. Jesus wore the crown of thorns, the very first symbol of sin. What I'm saying to you is in the events of the Lord's death and crucifixion, he experienced every single part of the curse of Genesis chapter 3 here. And the Bible says he redeemed us. He shed his innocent blood that we could be saved, that we could be freed ultimately from that curse that came upon the earth with Adam. And as heads of the race, Adam and Eve would pass down to you and to me and to every human ever born this judgment, this curse that came upon the world. Now, if there's one thing that I can remember from uh, chemistry when I was studying in school, I remember the first and second law of thermodynamics. You remember that? The professor said, this will be on your test. You better know this. If you don't know this, you're not getting out of here. And so I took notes and I listened. And the second law of thermodynamics is one of the most basic laws of, of the universe, of science. It's irrefutable. It's been proven 10,000 times. Dr. Fauci probably will try to refute it, but... Uh, up until now, the, law of second, the second law of thermodynamics is still an absolutely proven law. Here's what it says. It says, all systems, if left to themselves, degrade and fall into disorder. In time, they lose their structure, they wear out, they break down, or they die. It's called the law of entropy. Everything is falling apart. So you say, yeah, that's me. (laughs) 
Everything is falling apart. Well, it is. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's why we get sick. It's why we die. It's why we have disease. But it, it affects all systems. It's why institutions fail. Things, if left to themselves, wear out, break down, and die. They fall apart. The law of entropy, the second law. Now, where did the second law start? Right here, Genesis 3. God didn't intend for people to be sick. God didn't intend for people to ever die. But the fall, the fall produced that. And so the ultimate question is, um, why is there so much evil and suffering in the universe? You know. Now, a lot of people know intellectually they don't believe it. They, they reject the explanation that I'm giving you right now. And they will blame it on society. They'll blame it on environment or heredity. or They'll blame it on conditioning. They'll blame it on something. But here's the biblical worldview. We have evil and suffering in the world, and it even is growing like leaven that leaveneth the whole lump, Jesus said. It's growing. Evil times and seducers will get worse and worse. And evil came from an act of rebellion against Almighty God by the first two people He ever, he ever uh, created. I've enjoyed a, a, a long life. And I, I don't want to leave you on a low note, but I can tell you this, never in my life, never in my life, my personal testimony, have I seen it so dark. So many things falling apart and going wrong, politically, economically, spiritually, morally. Just pick your category. The second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, the law of be sure your sin will find you out. If you want to see what happens to the heart of man, watch some of these protests against the uh, Supreme Court supposed decision that would limit abortion. Look at the signs and then pray and ask God to clean your mind. Listen to the rhetoric. How angry people can be because they can't murder their baby. Insanely angry because I can't kill the fruit of my womb. And the vileness with which they address it and speak about it. That's just one of 10,000 pieces of illustration I could share with you. And it started right here. I can't quit. You understand, I'm like the man who was addicted to brake fluid. He said, I can stop anytime I want. (laughs) 
All right, I'm going to in just a second, but go to verse 21. I can stop anytime I want. Verse 21 here. I want you, you can't go. Everything right now has been kind of dark, but unto Adam and to his wife, the Lord made coats of skins and clothed them. And beside that, write the first gospel. The first gospel. Here's the gospel. After this terrible calamity of Adam and Eve, God took coats of skins. Well, where'd he get the skin? He had to take the life of an innocent little animal, probably a little goat or a little lamb. He had to take the life of that little animal and take the skin and create them a covering, the same word used for an atonement, by the way, a covering for their nakedness. So here we have the first death ever in history. And the death is what? It's the death Blood was shed to provide a covering for the sins of the first couple. But it pointed to a future event when another innocent victim, the Son of God, would shed His blood on the cross, of, on the cross as an atonement, a covering to cover our sins and to crush the head of Satan as the Lord had promised right here. Bow your head with me in prayer, if you will.